Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. There's ongoing fallout over the extraordinary power grab by government during the COVID pandemic. Today, we'll hear from an attorney who single-handedly overturned a New York state regulation that gave the executive branch there the power to quarantine anyone and to define what that means. But now the state is using taxpayer money to appeal. Bobby Ann Cox is an attorney, and one has to wonder why she alone, one attorney in New York State, took it upon herself to fight a New York State governor-imposed regulation that awarded itself, the executive branch in the state, extraordinary and unprecedented authority. A court eventually ruled it was unconstitutional authority. The authority to quarantine people at will, to pick and choose without due process, to define what a quarantine means, where these people could be kept, what they would be allowed to do, how long the quarantine would last, and maybe even what medicine they could be forced to take or prevented from taking. This is especially frightening when you consider how wrong government was about practically every therapy and COVID mitigation they advanced. Now New York State is appealing the ruling that limited its authority Here's attorney Bobby Ann Cox. I had been saying, I guess, as the panic over COVID was dying down, that there was going to be years of fallout with lawsuits coming to fruition or decisions over some of these things that happened. And your case, I think, is a perfect example of that. So can you, first of all, in really simple terms, um, describe what the action was that New York State's governor took? and then why you thought that was unconstitutional on its face. Yes, absolutely. So um, the governor in New York made a regulation uh, through the Department of Health, so completely bypassed the New York State Legislature, which is our senators and our assemblymen. And basically what that regulation that came from the Department of Health said was that the commissioner of health, who is appointed by the governor. This is not an elected person. She's appointed by the governor. And everybody that works in the Department of Health is just, you know, hired government employees. But this regulation gave a power to the commissioner of health to pick and choose which New Yorkers they could lock up or lock down. Now, they could lock you up in your home, or they could have removed you from your home by force of police and put you into a detention center of their choosing. You had no say. They could have locked you up or locked you down for days, for weeks, for months. There was no time restriction in that regulation. Uh, There was no provision saying that they had to actually prove that you were sick. They didn't have to prove that you were exposed to a communicable disease they could just lock you up or lock you down for however the, however long they wanted for whatever reason they wanted. And the, the regulation itself said that they had the power to tell you what you could and couldn't do while you were in quarantine. So if you think about that, uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means they could have told you anything. They could have told you 
you know, where you could sleep, how long you could sleep, what you could eat, if you could eat. Uh, they could have told you whether or not you could um, get medical attention. They could have told you medications you couldn't take, had to take, vaccines you had to take. I mean, the language was very broad. And um, there was just simply no due process. There was no provision on how you got out of quarantine once they put you in there. So what I mean by that is we, we were having oral arguments in front of the judge last year, and he asked the attorney general's office, he said, point blank, let's, tell you, let's say you take a family and you put them into quarantine in a facility somewhere, let's say maybe a hospital. Once they're in there, how do they get out? And there was a really pregnant pause. And then finally, the attorney general's office said, well, I guess they could hire a lawyer and they could sue us. Wow. Well, let me ask a couple quick questions before we dig in. What time frame was this that the regulation was installed? So this regulation first came about in March of 2020 under Governor Cuomo. Um, and then when he stepped down in uh, August of 2021 and Hochul became the governor, she just kept repromulgating this same regulation over and over again. The difference between the two was that Governor Cuomo was given special powers by the New York State Legislature in March of 2020 because of the pandemic. Um, and so Although that in itself was unconstitutional, what they did, um, it only lasted for a year. Then they repealed the special powers. But Hochul was never given special powers by the legislature. She had absolutely zero authority to make this regulation. And do you know of any instances in which they, against their will, did use this detention power? I don't personally know of any times that they did. And in fact, the judge asked that very question last year during oral arguments. He asked the attorney general's office if they've been using this regulation on New Yorkers. And uh, they could not cite any specific times that they had been using it. And so the question then became, well, if you're not using if, if this is such an emergency, but you're not using this why are you fighting over it? Why are you even making this regulation and then fighting against me tooth and nail about it? So they have a bigger, they have a bigger plan. There's What do you suspect is the bigger agenda there? Um, they do come right out and say in their papers, the attorney general and, and um, you know, who represents the governor and the department of health, they come right out and say that they need total control over 19 million New Yorkers with you know, the, the stroke of a pen. They want to be able to have, they call it centralized power. So they wanna be able to say what you can do, when you can do it, how you can do it, if you can do it on their terms. And they don't, they literally admit that they wanna take the power away from local governments, local municipalities, local health departments. They want everything centralized at the state level. And as far as you know, is this an invention of New York or did any other states try to do something similar? So to my knowledge, I believe that New York is the only state that tried to do this through a regulation through their Department of Health. Now, all states, 
I'm pretty certain all states, including New York, have a quarantine law, meaning a law that was created and passed by the, their actual state legislators. We have one here in New York. It's 70 years old, our quarantine law. And actually, our law is actually pretty well written. It, it provides a lot of due process protections to the citizens. For example, the law we've had for 70 years in New York says you can be removed from society because you're a public health threat. But in order to get to that point, you have to actually have a hearing in front of a judge. You have the right to an attorney. There has to be a whole investigation. And they have to prove not just that you have a communicable disease, but that you have a communicable disease and you are not acting in a way that protects other people around you. So there is a lot of due process built into our law about quarantines, but this was coming from the Department of Health as a rule, not a law, and it completely conflicted with our existing law. And that's that's actually the main reason that the court struck this down last year. They said, in essence, you can't make a rule that conflicts with a law. That's, you know, breach of separation of powers. You know, you cannot, you're the Department of Health, you cannot do this. So here we are on appeal. On the argument that it's unconstitutional, I think on its face, that would be the reaction of most people. But can you give me uh, the specifics as to what is unconstitutional about that? Yeah, there. so there are a couple different things. Um, the main thing is it's a breach of separation of powers. So um, in our constitution, whether you talk about this, the federal constitution or you talk about New York state constitution, they both say the same thing. We have three branches of government. Each branch is co-equal, meaning not one branch should be above the others. One branch is the legislative. That's who makes the laws, right? That's the senators. That's the assembly members. Then the other branch is the executive. That's where the governor sits and all her agencies sit beneath her. And then you have the judicial branch, which is the judges and the courts. So each of those has their own power and they are supposed to stay in their own lane. And when one of them takes a power from the other, that's when we have a problem that's breach of separation of powers. And that's technically that's tyranny. The definition of tyranny is when somebody in power takes a power that they're not supposed to have. They're not entitled to it. And here, the governor and her Department of Health took a legislative power. They made a rule that conflicted with an existing law. You can't do that. You, they, they basically were trying to write a law over a law, but they don't have the power to write a law. They're not in the right branch of government. So that's the, the main reason why this was struck down is unconstitutional. It's also unconstitutional because there's no due process protections built into that regulation that they made, which is what I had just explained earlier. You can't just be, be an agency, an unelected bureaucrat sitting in the health department, and you can't just pick and choose which New Yorkers you're going to pluck out of their homes and throw into detention centers with no proof that they're sick just because you say so. Right. It's it's complete violation of due process. One thing you said reminded me of an entirely different context, but a lot of election rules were made before the last election that I believe that was the argument that conflicted with or would have had to have been passed by the state legislatures and were not. And therefore, after the fact, even though it was far too late, some of these uh, 
policies or rules that were changed for the last election were deemed to be not in effect, but there's really nothing you can do to go back and, or nothing they will do to go back and try to change the election. It's just moving forward. Yeah, they, they, so what we saw happen in, in March of 2020 and thereafter, we saw a complete breakdown of separation of powers. Now, people don't think of it that way because, you know, really civics are not taught in schools today, which is a shame. They got rid of civics and they should bring it back immediately. The constitution should be taught starting in kindergarten straight through 12th grade, but that's a different topic for a different day. Um, So what happened was you saw government actors typically in the executive branch, meaning governors in in their capacity or even the president at the federal level, you saw them through their agencies going, because agencies are in the executive branch, going about doing things that they didn't have the power to do, whether it was regarding elections or whether it it was regarding quote unquote health and safety. And because there was such fear about this pandemic, they had people acquiescing. I mean, the masses, I'm sure you saw it firsthand yourself, right? The masses were giving up their rights voluntarily, left and right, without question, because they were scared. And so the government took advantage of that and they kept that power. They took the power they shouldn't have had and they kept it. And so now we're seeing the fallout is, okay, well, now lawyers are stepping up to bring lawsuits. Now, some lawyers were bringing lawsuits all along, right? There were lawsuits in 2020 and 2021 against the tyranny, but they were failing because there was so much fear that the courts didn't have really the courage to make the correct rulings in a lot of cases. But now, 2022, 2023, that fear has subsided. And thankfully, the courts are are returning to adhering to the Constitution. Now, not all courts are, but um, where we brought our lawsuit, which was uh, Senator George Borrello is my lead plaintiff in this case, and he represents uh, Western New York. And we brought the lawsuit there in his district, and uh, the judge... New York State Supreme Court Judge Ron Plotz ruled in our favor, struck it down, said it was unconstitutional, made it null and void, and prohibited the Department of Health from enforcing it. So now the governor and the attorney general have appealed. So now we're we're on appeal, which is the appellate division um, up in Western New York. So we're, we're literally duking it out right now on appeal all over again. And I want everybody to know that they are using your tax dollars to fight me on this. So it's your tax dollars being wasted to try and get back an unconstitutional power that the governor and the Department of Health want for themselves. I think one of um, in, one more interesting point about all of this is that the argument during the panic over COVID was often that, hey, there may be these rules and procedures and even constitutional protections, but this is an emergency. So people were willing to go, okay, maybe these are different times. But I would argue it's never more important to adhere to the existing rules and constitutional protections or constitutional you know, mandates than when there is an emergency and people aren't thinking clearly and the government may want to overreach. 
that's you don't need these protections when nobody's trying to usurp them. You need them precisely at times like that. So I, I think it was just so backwards that a lot of people threw up their hands and said, okay, do as you wish. This is an emergency. You're a hundred percent right, Cheryl, a hundred percent right. And I, I, in addition to practicing law, I give a lot of speeches. I go all over New York state and oftentimes outside New York state to other states, giving speeches about the importance of of the constitution and separation of powers and giving this example of government overreach and such, trying to educate people so that they will feel empowered to stand up for themselves and their rights. But you're hundred percent right. The constitution is not suspended in time of emergency. The constitution is most needed in time of emergency. And you know something else that I think a lot of Americans have lost sight of, especially the past three plus years now, is that the Constitution was written to keep the government in check. It wasn't written to keep the people in check. So, you know, we have to get away from this, this mass, um, mass thinking that the government controls us, the government tells us what to do, the government knows best. That is not the point of our Constitution. It's the opposite. If you actually read our Constitution, it gives the power to the people and then the people give power to the government. But we have completely lost sight of that. And it's because people don't even realize what their rights are. And partly because the government doesn't behave that way. I typically find myself arguing to see public documents and so on from government actors who act as though they are their personal documents and I'm asking for a favor. And I frequently remind them, I own the documents, you don't. You've collected them on our behalf. We pay you, but you don't own the final product, we do. And I don't don't think they even think like that, including, um, you know, any federal agency you can name. I had that argument with someone in Congress. They're not subject to FOIA, but they were withholding a public hearing video that I wanted to see a couple of years back and told me that, Maybe I could look at it in the future in a library setting that I, without using it. And I had to point out to them, it's not your video. You know, the video was not collected for you, for your use. So it's pretty, it's pretty shocking how we've sort of allowed this slip into the notion that the government is, as some people would say, our nanny or our master. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know about Australia, but I saw videos and examples without researching or digging into it, where it looked like they were doing a similar thing, I think it was Australia, where people were complaining that they were being taken from their homes, even without a COVID test at times, and forced to isolate at some facility where they were able to somehow record videos. Do you do you know anything about whether other countries did actually acted upon a power to detain during COVID? Yes, absolutely, they did. And um, specifically with Australia, I I spoke with a woman, uh, an Australian woman, who spent two weeks in an Australian quarantine camp. And um, I actually wrote an article about it. Um, I, I write a weekly Substack that uh, once a week, typically my articles focus on um, constitution, our rights, um, very much so in the legal realm. Um, but I wrote a Substack article about it, which was um, then republished by the Brownstone Institute. I'm, I'm also a Brownstone Institute fellow. 
um, and then it was picked up by the Epoch Times. But in essence, this woman told me that uh, there was a period of time in Australia where the government said, if you want to leave your region, meaning like basically your state, they don't have states there, but it was kind of like leaving your state, you had to first go to a quarantine camp um, for two weeks and stay there. And then you could go to, you know, a different state, let's say, um, in Australia. And so in order to go to a different state to visit one of her family members, she had to first fly up to Darwin, which is the northern part of Australia, and stay in this camp for two weeks. Camp, like, not like summer camp. Camp, like, I mean, my my Substack article actually has photographs that she sent me from the camp. We're talking about fence, you're completely fenced in all around you. Um, you have police that are actually patrolling through the camp at all times. They told you what you couldn't, couldn't do. They had to wear masks, even outside in the sweltering heat, they had to wear masks up over their noses. Um, there was there was a pool on site, but the pool was not like you could go hang out and have fun in the pool. It was once a week, you got 40 or 45 minutes to go into the pool, not to play, you could swim laps and then you could get out and be done. They had to walk the camp, the, the I call them prisoners. The prisoners had to walk the camp. You had to walk only one direction, single file, X number of feet apart from the other person, there was no gatherings. You couldn't like socialize with the other people. Uh, they made your meals for you. It, 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 she showed, she sent me a picture of the room where she had to stay and the food and everything. So, you know, it, absolutely atrocious, absolutely atrocious. And the government was requiring you do this to move freely within your own country. Well, I not mean, only is that, you know, unscientific and ridiculous, I think, even in retrospect, even people that propose certain policies understand or agree that they weren't working and they were ill-advised. But I guess there are people here that look at that and go, we'd love, we'd love to do that too. It's hard to imagine, but I guess that's the case. Yeah. You know, anybody that, um, so, uh, last year I was interviewed by, um, NTD news and, um, Cindy Drew Gray did did a, a piece on it. What and, is NTD, please? I'm sorry. What is NTD? Oh, NTD News. They're they're um, an affiliate with the Epoch Times. Okay, gotcha. Um, yes, and so um, after the as part of the interview, um, they did a poll where they had you know reporters in the field just stopping people in you know various different cities around the country and and asking them, hey, you know, are you are you in favor of quarantine camps? You know, and obviously the large majority of the people they stopped and asked said, no, absolutely not. Um, but there were a couple who said, oh yeah, well, you know, they, they do, they do it in China and it works. So yeah, I think we should try it here. Whoa. So it's just, it's bad information. People have bad information. They're not getting the whole picture. They're not getting the uh, the details of, you know, hey, in theory, oh yeah, let's lock people up that have a disease that can harm other people. 
But then when you actually think about it or try to put it into practice, you realize, oh my gosh, this is completely inhumane. This is, this is against all of our civil rights. You know, it, it, you can't do that. It, it's, it's not just unconstitutional, it's inhumane. You don't do that to people, absolutely not. There, Another question all of this raised during the time period to me was, where were the thousands of attorneys or privacy advocates or constitutional advocates, the ACLU, you brought the case, but there should have been thousands of attorneys crying out over the you know, alleged violations that this policy New York State put into effect, the regulations. Um, why, why were you the lonely voice? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, you make a really great point here because I, I actually wrote a Substack article about this very topic. You know, where aware have the civil rights organizations gone, right? Where aware could they be? Because they, they are nowhere to be found. Still today, they are nowhere to be found. You know, last year when I first brought this lawsuit against the governor in New York, um, there was an amicus brief that was written by a group of New York State Assemblymen. Um, so that's assemblymen. A, brief, a brief in support of what you're doing, I guess. Correct. Correct. So an amicus brief means it's it's someone who's not actually a party in the lawsuit, uh, but they have a keen interest on the outcome of the lawsuit. And so they write um, a brief and submit it to the court and ask the court to consider it along with my argument. Um, so a group of New York State Assembly members, uh, Assemblyman Goodell and Assemblyman uh, Joseph Giglio and Assemblyman Will Barkley wrote this amicus brief and submitted it to support my case. And, uh, you know, that was the one and only amicus brief that showed up in that case. You know, like you said, where were all these other civil rights organizations? I mean, goodness gracious, they should be jumping all over this forced isolation and quarantines with no due process, with no proof you're even sick. It's unbelievable. Um, this year, now that we're on appeal, because the, the governor is trying to get this power back, um, an amicus brief was just submitted about two weeks ago um, by the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is um, a civil rights organization based in Washington, D.C. Um, so they just filed an amicus brief to support my case on appeal here. Um, and there are one or two other organizations that might also do an amicus brief at this point. But um, yeah, you know, the, the issue really is um, we need, like you said, we need a thousand lawyers doing this. You know, not just a few lawyers doing that. We need a thousand lawyers doing this in New York alone. Um, you know, there may be a handful of us that bring cases that that are really, you know, going up against the government and trying to stop their complete and utter overreach. But we need a thousand just in New York, right? It 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 really is surprising when when I was drafting this lawsuit against the governor back in. January, February of 2022, I did reach out to many colleagues. Um, not one would help with the case. Not one would be a part of it. It, it was- What it were was, some of the reasons you heard? Um, sometimes it was because I, I'm handling the case pro bono, um, meaning that means, I'm- that, getting, means what, that means free, by the way, for people that don't know. <laughs> you're, not, yeah. you're not being paid to do it. 
Correct. Correct. Pro bono means you you don't get paid to to bring the lawsuit, which means basically I'm funding the lawsuit by myself. Um, and so, you know, they didn't want to work for free. Um, some of them didn't believe in my my theory that I was going under, which was the separation of powers theory. Uh, you know, some of them said, well, you have to wait until the governor is actually pulling people out of their houses and throwing them into these det detention centers. Uh, I said, there's no way I'm waiting until they do that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Much more after a short break. It's all well and good that these things are being explored a year, two years, three years later, and maybe some of them tossed out and some precedents being set in, on, in a good way. But what's important to do is at the time, because dialing things back after the fact or saying that they shouldn't have happened certainly doesn't help in the moment, which is when the crisis is happening. And it's just, again, I think, again, this leads into another issue. People were scared in some cases. People may not agree, but there was such a propaganda effort that was so successful to controversialize people who raised questions, legitimate questions about these sorts of things that we were intimidated into keeping our mouth shut. And that's even more dangerous than, than what we've discussed so far. The fact that the government is able to put people in a position where they think something is wrong or know something is wrong, but they dare not speak about it. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, courage is contagious. So when you see somebody stand up and speak out uh, against something that's wrong, it, it tends to then encourage other people to, to be courageous as well. Um, but a lot of times, like what you're saying, it's hard for that first person to stand up. Um, you know, you feel like you're alone. You feel like you don't have a backing. Um, and in, in a lot of cases you don't, but I hope that people have learned something from what happened and it's still happening over the past three years. I hope that the next time the government tries to do something like this to its people, People say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. You don't have the authority to do this to me. And I'm not going to let you do this to me. You know, it's we're seeing this, you know, I call it catch me if you can. It's this attitude of government actors, especially agencies in the executive branch under either your governor or under the president doing things they know they can't do. They know they don't have the authority to do it but they're doing it anyway. And their attitude is, well, come catch me if you can. Come bring a lawsuit against me and let's see what the court says. If the court strikes it down and says, I can't do this anymore, okay, well, maybe I'll stop then. But if the court doesn't strike it down, well, I'm just gonna keep this power I gave to myself. That's exactly what we're seeing at the federal level. I can give a couple examples. When we saw the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, which is an agency under the president, they made a, a nationwide eviction moratorium. Okay. The center for disease control made an eviction moratorium um, and said to landlords across the country, you can't evict your tenants for non-payment of rent because that's going to spread COVID. So, you know, as soon as they issued this, you know, I said, absolutely not. 
No, you do not have the power to do this. You are an agency. You are not Congress. And you're the CDC. You have nothing to do with, with housing in the United States of America. Now, ultimately, a year and a half later, the United States Supreme Court did strike it down as unconstitutional, but it took a year and a half. And in that year and a half, you saw landlords across the country completely decimated by this. Most landlords in our nation are mom and pop shops. They're little, they're little people, right? They're people, they're not these huge, you know, very wealthy conglomerate corporations. No, that is not the norm. The norm is, you know, the mom and dad, the husband and wife who worked their tail off, bought a property, they live in part of the property, and then the other part of the property they rent out. That's, that's very common as being a landlord. And what you saw was, well, when the tenants stopped paying, well, what are you going to do? Because now the landlords can't pay their bills. They can't pay their mortgage. They can't pay their property taxes. They can't pay their insurance on the property. And, and so they were going belly up. They were having to sell the properties for pennies on the dollar. They were having to sell the properties. Sometimes it went into foreclosure because they couldn't pay their mortgages. I mean, it was complete carnage. And it was an attack on the middle class. And it was very sad to see, very sad. I saw it firsthand because my wheelhouse before COVID was, was real estate law. And this was a perfect example of come catch me if you can. I'm the CDC. I know I can't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it took a year and a half to get it struck down. In, in the final moments, um, couple quick questions. What is the Brownstone Institute? You said you're a fellow there. Yes, the Brownstone Institute um, is a nonpartisan um, think tank, and uh, they have a fabulous website. If anybody would like to check it out, it's brownstone.org. Um, and it basically, uh, the articles there talk about um, economics and law and policy. Um, and so it's it's a very robust um, information center. Um, they do host events by times. Um, they have their annual uh, conference and gala coming up uh, the first weekend in November, which will take place in Texas. Um, so the Brownstone Institute, uh, I'm a fellow there this year. So I um, attend their conferences. I give speeches. I write articles for them. Um, it's a fabulous organization. I do encourage people to check out brownstone.org. Okay. And um, any timing idea on this appeal when that could be decided? Yes. So um, we have oral arguments that will be coming up September 13th. Those will be in the um, New York State Appellate Division, 4th Department in Rochester, New York. And uh, so once we have the oral arguments, um, it would typically be, you know, thereafter, maybe maybe we'll see a decision in October, perhaps November. I, I don't have an exact time frame, but um, I, I am expecting uh, a, a decision this fall from the from the court. OK, and then um, where can people find out more? You mentioned your Substack. If people don't understand Substack or know how to use it, how how can they find you there? Do they just go online? and go to substack.com and search your name. How, how does that work? Yes, um, so people can do um, substack.com and then type in the search bar, uh, Bobby Ann Cox, or you can uh, go to my substack directly. It's attorneycox 
www.substack.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, it's my handle on Twitter is attorney underscore Cox, C-O-X. Um, I also have a website, which is pretty comprehensive. Um, I have a lot of articles and interviews on there. It's um, www.coxlawyers.com. So that's C-O-X lawyers.com. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like if people can get informed, stay informed and share the information, I feel like that is really the way we're going to get out of this mess because the more people we can wake up, <laughs> the more people will stand up and say, yeah, no, we're not, we're not standing for this anymore. Well, thank you for all that you do. And if someone wants to read the other side, what the government is arguing or the state of New York, is there an easy way for them to find their complaint or their, I guess you made the complaint, their answers to your, your arguments? Yes. Yes. So um, the, there's a citizens group that is also one of my plaintiffs on this quarantine lawsuit. It's called Uniting New York State is the name of the group. And they actually set up a web page specifically about this case. Um, so people can go to www.unitingnys.com. And if you just click on the link that says lawsuit, it'll bring you to a page that has, um, there's a link there to the judge's decision from the court below. There are pictures and videos and um, a time frame, a timeline of the case. So th there's a ton of information right there, um, including the documents. So um, that's unitingnys.com. All year round, there are challenges to keeping your skin healthy. Salt, sun, chlorine, cold, and wind. That's why I designed Siren A Cosmetics, a line of skin-loving, handmade products that will keep your skin glowing year-round. I'm Star, owner of Lemonade Mermaid at store.lemonademermaid.life. I worked hard to formulate fresh, vegan body butters, lotions, scrubs, lip glosses, and more with ingredients that are good for your skin year-round. But don't take my word for it. Check out our reviews. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off my Mermaid Moon Gloss to Balm lip gloss by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products the most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.